The Athletic. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a hand break off. Hello, I'm Ian Stone. This is Handbreak Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Uh, it's Thursday morning, and as if Sunday wasn't enough fun for us, last night's game gave us a Casemiro booking, which means he'll miss the game at the Emirates on Sunday, and then a Palace equaliser to stop their momentum before it all got a bit out of hand. Uh, we'll talk about the implications as well as a general chat about whether anyone still has any doubts about Mikel Arteta and the process going forward. James McNicholas and Adrian Clark are here morning. Good morning. 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 So, um, I don't know if you heard, Amy revealed on this show on Monday that she wouldn't drive down Tottenham Lane on a North London derby weekend. Uh, <laughs> she, got, she looked in the sat-nav and one of the roads it took her down, she, wherever she was going, was Tottenham Lane. And she said, I'm not doing that on North London derby weekend. I mean, it's incredible the madness that we uh, that we fall for. But anyway, uh, we were wondering what superstitions you might have and whether they've actually worked. James, are you a superstitious person in any way about the Arsenal? I'm becoming one. I'm becoming oh, yeah. one. I think I've spoken before, maybe on this show, about having a superstition where during penalty shootouts I uh, hide my head underneath a tea towel. Um, if I'm watching one, on TV at home, I was going to say, do you bring one to the stadium just in no, case? No, I'm not a Newcastle fan, but I, um, I, I've got some other ones as well, which are developing. Like you know, the old thing of old oh, touch wood, touch wood, you know. But obviously, yeah. I, I, I do that during games. Um, like if there's a corner or a set piece, and I'm at home on the sofa, I'll reach for and t- t- touch the coffee table. Um, but I was at Spurs at White Hart Lane in the press box, and all the uh, surrounding furniture is plastic or metal. So I was in a real flap. I resorted to touching my skull. So I think the other writers around me were like, what is this guy doing? But every time Tottenham had a set piece or had the ball in within 30 yards of our goal, I would be just sort of tapping my skull rhythmically like that. And it worked perfectly. Aaron Ramsdale has me to thank. Um, yeah, I've got a, I, I'm a nervous wreck at the moment during games. During the Newcastle game... Uh, yeah, every time they had a set piece, I basically had to not watch. It's 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 tough. It's tough being me right now, as well as it's going. <laughs> I mean, and and would it be okay if anyone's near the press box and we there, there's a free kick for the opposition for someone to come along and touch your skull if they can like reach over? You're all welcome to touch my skull. It's exposed to the world now, so yeah, come and come and have a grab of it whenever you like. <laughs> As they get a free kick. Touch a skull, quick. Touch a skull. <laughs> anyway, what about Adrian? I mean, I'd, sorry, I had no idea I was podcasting with people from the 15th century. I genuinely didn't. Adrian, what about you? Got any? Look, I went through the entire repertoire as a player and realised that none works. No, so I'm out. I'm, da- I'm out. I'm out of it. I've tried a lot um, as a player, but... Yeah, various pre-match routines and boot boots on, you know, left boot, then right boot, left shin pad, right, you know, all that all that nonsense. Yeah, tried it all, but it, yeah, you know, they don't work, right, James? Uh, no, it doesn't. You say you yeah. say that, Adrian, but what I would say is look at the results. Yeah, I mean, Newcastle did not score from a set piece. Newcastle did not score right? from a set piece, and you know Top, how good is, they are at set pieces. This Adrian. is true. I have told this before, but Martin Margotson, uh, who's the England goalie coach, um, was a good mate of mine. Um, 
at Southend United and he was very superstitious and we used to get a lift in together and once he was driving he, he had a thing about the magpies and and when he saw one obviously he had to salute it did he and say morning Mr Magpie how's your wife and mm-hmm. children which is just weird anyway but <laughs> but he, he couldn't handle what? on a match day he couldn't handle seeing one on its own Sorrow, he had it? to Sorrow. he had to see he had to seek out a second yeah, of course. And I remember once he wouldn't go straight to the ground until he found another magpie to see. And we were driving around. <laughs> we were like, mate, we're going to get fined. We're going to be late for the game. He's like, I don't care. I don't care. I need to see a second one. So it's just it's just absolutely bonkers, can I, isn't it? Can I ask, um, did he find a second magpie? I don't, I I don't think And what was did. the result? Also. I think we lost. You lost. Yeah, well, I think you're one right. for sorrow. Yeah, there you, there you go. Yeah. We all know the magpie tune. <laughs> um, I have to say, by the way, I, I find it weird to ask this question because I am not a superstitious person in any way, um, which is why I've been happy to talk up our title credentials on this podcast before anyone yeah. else. right? And, and, and I'm just getting loads of people saying, oh, stop it, stop it. Although one or two people, I did get a... Uh, a um a direct message from someone I won't give his name because it was a direct message saying that he's a religious uh, Arsenal fan and he 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 appreciates my faith in what Mikel oh. Arteta and the boys are doing and he said <laughs> keep going with it okay so yeah. uh, uh, I appreciate that um yeah the only thing the only thing I'm not superstitious at all now but um the the only thing is about tempting fate. That is the thing that I do. Sorry, that is on sorry, my mind. Yeah. sorry. Can I just say you can't say a sentence like I'm not superstitious at all. But the only thing I do think is about tempting fate because that, by the way, Adrian, is superstition. Can I just oh, yeah, say to okay. you? Okay, is it? Well, that, that that might be that might just be sort of professional concern. You know, if you say about a player, oh, well, they're in imperious form. They've not made a mistake for exactly. months and months, and then next week, you know, they chuck one in their own net or whatever it is. Then it can rebound on you and people say, well, you know, you did say that last week. So that might just be a professional rather than oh, I superstitious. See. Well, I, well, then in that case, I was responsible for, for Mudrick not signing because I thought it was a done deal. <laughs> and I said so pretty much on this podcast. But anyway, sorry about that. When I lose a duel, I'm upset. When I lose the small side of the games, I'm upset. Because that's the fucking standard. Because you come here and know you fucking lose. James, you've written a piece about the end. Well, I say the end, but the end for the moment of the Arteta out uh, movement and hashtag. Um, essentially, mm. interviewing people who got it wrong. Um, you wouldn't have been. Um, you wouldn't have been short of interviewees. I would have thought because pretty much everyone, as far as I can tell, had reservations uh, about him. I mean, when did yours start to kick in? James, and I'm assuming you did have reservations about Mikel Arteta. Uh, I did, but I think I was... I mean, it was impossible not to, I think, in that run of, you know, the winter of 2020 when, you know, Arsenal went quite a long time without a Premier League win and uh, they were playing quite a rigid system at that time. The football wasn't great to watch. The results weren't much better. No. I think you had to have a degree of uh, concern at that point in time. I don't think I ever lost faith quite as uh, dramatically as some. Uh, I don't think I would have ever been quite in that Arteta out camp. But I think a lot of the worries at that point in time were reasonable. And there wasn't a track record for people to fall back on and say, well, look at what this guy's done in the past. And I think that's what's quite interesting now, actually, is to think, you know, was someone who wanted Arteta gone or thought he wasn't the right man for the job at that time, 
wrong. And the easy thing is to say, well, yes, look how great he's doing now. But I think it's equally possible that some of those concerns were valid and there are things that he may have changed, he may have improved upon. It would only be natural that a manager right at the very start of their career would still be developing. And, I'm, and in fact, I've heard him say, you know, I've made mistakes in my short time as Arsenal manager. And I'm sure there are transfers. I'm sure there are decisions that he looks back on and thinks, well, maybe I didn't get that right. But what is clear is that the decision to stick with him by the Arsenal hierarchy was the right one. And they made that from an informed position based on, you know, the work he was doing behind the scenes, what they knew of him. And they have been massively rewarded because, you know, right now his stock in world football, I would say, is incredibly high. Yeah. I mean, in terms of uh, decisions he's got wrong, I mean, maybe we could look at, say, Willie Ann as, you know, something like that, a signing like that on 200 grand a week. But, I mean, Adrian, the fans did not have the benefit of the, of the, uh, the interview that he gave to the club, where I imagine he was incredibly charismatic and knowledgeable and knew exactly what he wanted. And they were all wowed by it. I mean, they were wowed by it the first time, apparently. But they thought we need someone of experience. But we didn't have that. We, we didn't have the overall view of the vision that he had, which has obviously come to fruition or, or coming to fruition at this point. So I think, I think, I think uh, James is right, isn't he? That those doubts that we all had were, were perfectly valid. Oh, totally valid. Yeah. And the football was really sort of stilted for a while and very difficult to watch. Um, there's some, there were some really poor performances. I mean, so we lost to Burnley at home, didn't we? That was a, that was a shock of the Villarreal semi-final in the Europa League. We didn't really have any any ideas, you know. It, it was really nondescript performance. Even coming into the start of last season with a Chelsea game at home, the second game in the season, we took a bit of a beating there, and things weren't looking good. But but yeah, no, I think I like I liked his steeliness from the word go, and I knew that he would have built up. A, he would have known what it takes to win having worked at Pep Guardiola and I think he got that across with his first interview about how he wanted he needed to do a lot of work on the mentality of the players to to turn them into winners and he knew what it took to get there and and I think what we probably didn't well what none of us heard in that interview and I'm assuming this might have happened is that Mikel would have had that vision or explained the vision of clearing out the older players and bringing in a new new generation of younger players because that for me was the big that was the big crossroads point. He, what he inherited, the, the squad he inherited, I don't think wanting to listen to him, didn't want to, to, to go, they didn't want to jump on the boat as he described it. He needed players that, that were willing to do that. And it was just a matter of time before he could get rid of certain people to bring in players that, that were in his mould, um, both as footballers, but also as personalities. And, and that's where we find ourselves with the youngest team in the Premier League. Sat on the top of the Premier League. Yeah. Uh, I mean, not only did they not want to get in the boat, they were basically holding it beneath the water, weren't they, really, to be mm. fair. But, I mean, do you think there was any point when the board might have considered getting rid of Arteta? What would have happened, James, if we'd lost to Chelsea on Boxing Day? I mean, we were fifth, and 2020 this was, we were 15th. And one more supplementary to that, 
he only chose the young team that he chose because of injuries. I mean, we were talking about getting those young players in before that. I remember sitting in the stadium talking to, to mates, saying, why isn't he playing the young kids? If he's talking about playing the young kids, play the young kids. Willian got injured. In came Saka and Smith-Rowe and, and Gabriel Martinelli, and we beat them. What would have happened if we hadn't? Honestly, I think that the it would have been he would have been in a very difficult place with the supporters. But I'm not sure the club would have followed through and, and sacked him. I think their faith in him was so enormous. And if I think back to that time, you know, there was a lot of pressure and there were a, a lot of doubts being expressed and questions in the media. But the message that I was receiving from the key decision makers at Arsenal at that time was really consistent, that they really wanted to stick by this guy. And of course, they beca- there comes a point where it's untenable. And, you know, they reached that point to an extent with Unai Emery. But I don't think I don't think we were especially close, certainly from their perspective. No. And, you know, you, you spoke about faith. Well, they had an enormous faith in Mikel Arteta. And, you know, that has been rewarded. But I think it's an interesting conversation because, you know, you look at other clubs and they're... You see a lot of other fan bases citing Arteta as the reason to stick with a manager. You know, I'm seeing this a little bit in among Chelsea fans Chelsea, at the moment, yeah. you know, where they're, they're quite unhappy with the start Graham Potter's made. And there's kind of a, a debate there of like, yeah, but look at Arteta. And what I think is really interesting is the question of whether Arteta is a model that you can emulate or is Arteta the exception that proves the rule? You know, how many managers go through a period like that and then come good? Is it something that other clubs can learn from or is he an exceptional individual and uh, obviously it's difficult to know the answer to that because in football we don't really find out managers get dismissed but in this case Arsenal were obviously right to stick with it Do you think James very quickly that having a bad patch as a manager inside an empty stadium is better than having a bad patch in front of a packed stadium because I think that makes complete sense and I think Arteta may be lucked out in that regard I think that's true but I think what Mikel would probably say is that the empty stadiums were part of the problem as well. Yes, yeah. Like, yeah. you know, for him, forming that connection and that bond between the supporters mm. and the team has been a big Agreed. part of his project. And yeah. he was not able to do that. And that is the other thing that we should consider when we talk about the early part of Mikel Arteta's reign is the circumstances he found himself in, which, you know, obviously there was COVID, there was a lot of change executive level there was a lot it was a tumultuous time uh, on and off the pitch so that may have contributed to you know his slightly unusual progression to this point all right so when did he start to turn the fans around assuming that the board were were on board and and they were into it and they thought right we're going to carry this through and see what happens i mean the fa cup win was fun james um, we all uh, agree with that. But when you're finishing in eighth place and, and winning the FA Cup, that's Tottenham, isn't it? No one wants to be them. Even Tottenham at the moment, to be honest. <laughs> no, I don't think the FA Cup was the the launch pad that many hoped. Um, you know, some of the decisions taken the summer after that, you mentioned the signing of Willian, I think on reflection, even the extension of Aubameyang, while it made plenty of sense at the time, didn't pan out. So, you know, you had that winter of discontent, the Chelsea game, I think, was a big landmark milestone moment. As you say, by luck or design, he kind of stumbled upon Emil Smith-Rowe as a number 10. And a few weeks later, Arsenal signed Martin Odegaard on loan. And suddenly the football begins to change. The, the emphasis of the team begins to change. 
And I, I think what was interesting talking to different fans is that everyone had their own kind of eureka moment, a time where they got on board. One thing that cropped up quite a lot, actually, I thought was really interesting is a, a number of fans mentioned the documentary. Yeah. as quite a, an, an important thing. And, you know, Arsenal must feel pretty pleased with themselves about the decision they made to kind of open up their processes to an extent in that way. Because I think a lot of fans watched that and thought, well, I may not previously have been on board with this guy, but seeing his conduct behind the scenes, seeing his commitment, his ambition, I think that got a lot of people on board. Adrian, what about you? When do you think uh, when do you think things turned around? I mean, I I mean, a lot of, somebody in the article uh, that, that James wrote uh, cited the Man City game when everyone just went, oh, oh, we see, you know, new, whenever it was a year ago, New Year's Day, two thousand and twenty-two, when we lost, but we gave such a great performance. I also thought Chelsea away a little bit before that as well. Yeah, I I, I would pick out the City game too um, because until that point. He'd made a slightly more competitive against the the bigger teams, the the main rivals, but we were still reactive. We were still a team that didn't have the bravery to control the game or or set out to really be on the front foot against against the the top six teams. We tended to sit back and counter counter against them. In this game, it it suddenly clicked that we can really knock Manchester City out of their stride because we've got the players to do it. We've got the belief. We've got the hunger. We've also got the organisation. The pressing that day was magnificent and we really gave it to them. We should have won the game. I think everybody recognises that. It was quite a lucky win for Manchester City. So, yeah, that was the day I I, I thought, oh, okay, if this is how we're going to play every week, I'll tell you what, we're going to be right at the top end of the table mm. and we're going to win these games that we've we've been losing for too long. So yeah, that was my eureka moment and then yeah, obviously we had some ups and downs after that, but but I feel that the way we played in that city game is the way we've played this season consistently, always pressing, always on the front foot, always looking to go and hurt the opposition and and trying to control the game and 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 it took a long time to get to that point. I mean, to be fair, there were a few people in football who saw it before before most of us did. Um, I mean, I saw Jose Mourinho's quotes after Arsenal were beaten by Tottenham in, uh, in December 2020. He said, I want to give good words and congratulations to Mikel because he gave us a very difficult game. Tactically, they are very good. They're very well organised. They were building with four, defending with five. I can imagine tomorrow the headlines will be about them not being in a good position on the table. But I believe with this players, with Mikel, Arsenal will be Arsenal again. Go on, Adrian. Mm. Yeah, I, I I saw those quotes. And I I went through back through my back catalogue of breakdowns. <laughs> so I looked through all my scripts <laughs> that I'd written and I, I looked back at that game because um, you forget that it's so much football. Um, and, and the bit I picked out in the stats section of the breakdown really is interesting from that defeat. Um, so final third passes, this is Spurs away, which we ended up getting beat by a couple of counter-attack goals. Spurs at home, uh, final third passes, Spurs 35, Arsenal 214. <laughs> I mean, quite the difference. Uh, open play crosses, was that a Spurs lot? That three. was the one where there were a lot of crosses, weren't there, really? Yeah, Spurs 3, Arsenal 32. Yeah, but it never <laughs> felt. Did you? It's interesting, isn't it? Because from my point of view, I watched that game and I remember yeah. Mikel Arteta saying, I think we did really well in that game. And I didn't feel that way. James, no. how were you about that? Yeah, we didn't. We didn't have that threat. We had a lot of. We had the possession. We had the territory. But we didn't have 
the threat. That's something that's obviously we've built on since. But the fact that we were able to go there and control it in such a way, I think, is what Jose was getting to, getting at, James. Yeah, no, I, I would I would second that. I think it was the the way in which we dominate. We didn't have the cutting edge, uh, as Adrian suggests, in that final phase. But I think if you look at Arteta's team, there is quite a an argument. You'd have to sort of step back from it. And if Adrian went through all his breakdowns, it'd be interesting to see. But it almost feels like he built it sort of back to front, defence to attack. You know, I think it was all about solidity and structure and actually... What we're seeing in the final third felt like kind of the icing on on the cake, if you will. It feels like he had to get it in place right from the back of the pitch to the front. I don't know if you've felt the same, Adrian. Definitely. I think a lot of it at the back was to do with pace. We didn't have any for so long, and um, which meant that we had to play probably 10 yards deeper on the pitch. So what, what he always wanted to do was be a pressing, high energy high octane side that disrupted others and controlled the match in the other half but because we didn't have the right defenders to do that he, he, he had to work slowly towards it so yes and, and once he got the right the right defenders in obviously then he, Thomas Partey was the big acquisition uh, and, and Erdegaard was, was, was then the next link man and and the kids ahead of him came came good didn't they so no yeah, absolutely that's the way he looked at it and I'd like to know if you planned it that way or whether it's just circumstance. I, I suspect it was part of some kind of plan. And also talking about fan perception and, you know, the manager's sort of uh, poll ratings, I, I think probably that kind of pragmatism, and Arteta's talked about this a bit, contributed to some of the confusion over what exactly his idea of football was. You know, he had an idea that he came in with, but he didn't have the players at his disposal to put that out on the pitch. And so he did cut his cloth accordingly. I mean, if you look at the way Arsenal won the FA Cup in 2020, it was playing a very different style of football to what they're playing right now. And so I think a lot of people look at it and say, well, what is this manager's idea? Is it to do X, to do Y? And now it couldn't be clearer, but it's because he's got the correct tools at his disposal. It's his squad at this point in time. Quiet. Tim Cahill also, by the way, there was also a, um, a video of Tim Cahill at Manchester United when we won 1-0 in the middle of not a particularly good patch and saying the key is Arsenal progressing because there's a formula to how they're playing, which exactly backs up what you just said. Roy Keane, by the way, wasn't impressed <laughs> at all. I imagine he is now, although it takes a lot to impress him. But it does go to show, does it not, Adrian, that even a player, a player like Roy Keane, who obviously does, you know, has played the game at the highest level and, and understands the game, Still didn't see, uh, and uh, you know, forget the fans. I don't want to put put aside the fans, but the fans obviously don't know a huge amount about how these things work. But plenty of professionals felt the same way. Yeah, they did. But at the same time, I think in the, in those TV studio environments, sometimes you're under pressure to to follow certain narratives, to you know, create a debate. And someone like Roy Keane, even though. Cahill wouldn't have seen Arsenal every week. I, th- I think to get a true feel of, of of teams and the way they're developing, you need to really watch a lot of football. And I think maybe in Keane's case, he just hadn't seen enough of Arsenal to to come to that conclusion that the formula was there. But, but we all we all get things wrong. I wouldn't I wouldn't bash Keno too much over that. He, he oh, wasn't no. alone at, the, at that point. But but yeah, no. I I think from the first match that I saw Arteta, I thought I like the ideas. I like the rotational positions. I like fullbacks coming into midfield and, and other players covering out wide. Little things like that, you thought, well, this guy's really bright, 
but it took it took a long time but more importantly it took getting it took getting the right personnel to to make everything click into gear and, and that's where we find ourselves well, it certainly seems to be working which is marvelous uh, this is handbrake off the arsenal podcast uh, brought to you by the athletic this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. We were a bit uh, with the handbrake at time. Ian Stone, James McNicholas and Adrian Clark here on Handbrake Off. I should say at this point, I should basically apologise at this point because we're going to talk about transfers again. Um, although, James, there's been some developments. Uh, Fabrizio Romano uh, saying that personal terms have been agreed with Leandro Trossard. That doesn't mean that the clubs have agreed a fee because we know after watching Mudrik that uh, that... Uh, that needs to be sorted as well. And so far, Chelsea haven't made any move to hijack the deal. So uh, <laughs> uh, we maybe we should keep qu- maybe we should keep quiet. Decent player, uh, winger. I mean, it, it, squad player to start. Would you say? I think it's an interesting one. I mean, uh, it's interesting why you say winger. I mean, yes, he is ostensibly a winger, but he's played a lot of his football for Brighton through the middle this season, and I think. That may be one of the reasons that he's attracted Arsenal at this point in time because the you know they, yeah he's versatile he can play off either flank and he can play through the middle and he's shown that he's a goal scorer he's scored plenty of goals listen it's not a signing that's going to excite people in the way of Mikhailo Mudrik because I think there's an exoticism about someone coming in from another league especially when they're younger as well and a big price tag like that they could be anything right you feel like this guy's potential is unlimited. With someone like a Trossard, we kind of have a sense that we know what he is. He's 28 at this point in time. He's, we've seen him in the Premier League. But I think that there could be a value in that for Arsenal. He comes in as someone, assuming a deal gets done, which I don't think is in, impossible at this stage. I think Brighton won about £25 million from what I've heard, which you know we know from what we were bidding for Mudrick as well within our, our budget. It. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, they know that as well. Um, so that might <laughs> make negotiations a bit more straightforward. He comes in with plenty of Premier League experience. And, you know, I, I don't know how quickly this deal could happen, but you could chuck him into the squad straight away. It's a guy who knows the league um, very, very well. And, yeah, I don't think he's he's going to be come in and I'd be surprised if he displaces Martinelli or Saka at this point in the starting eleven. But is that something we need or want. I think we need cover, competition, a quick fix because Mudrik didn't work out. And in that respect, I can see the logic in why Arsenal have, have landed on him as maybe the one to go for. I mean, Adrian, I mean, if he is, as as James said, he's uh, uh, right now he'd probably be a squad player, but we can't be bringing in too many players to displace the ones we've got because... The ones we've got are just doing an amazing job. We just want to keep them fit and healthy, and uh, but have someone to bring off the bench with twenty-five minutes to go if we need a change. This is this is a bench transfer window, isn't it? <laughs> what do Arsenal need? Yeah. It's if the, the first eleven get crocked, suspended, whatever. 
we need options or if we're having a bad game where something needs changing, that the manager can have the tools at his disposal to bring someone on that can impact the game positively. And I do think Trossard ticks that box. I really do. He scored a couple of goals off the bench for Brighton this season already. James is right about his versatility. Six games as a striker this season, three as a number 10. The rest on the left. So not really a Saka, not really competition for Bako Saka. I'd say more so... Gabriel Martinelli. Um, he played up front and scored in that 4-1 win against Chelsea. It was brilliant in that match. He scored a hat-trick at Anfield. <laughs> His last five Brighton goals came against Liverpool, Manchester City and Chelsea. So if anyone's worried about whether he can do any damage in, in, in the big games, maybe maybe don't need to worry. But um, he's, he's ostensibly left-footed. He's got a very, very good left foot. And yeah, I like him. He creates chances. He scores goals. The other thing to point out is that he loves a press. The Andre Trossard, mm. he's all over it. Mm. Obviously, Brighton play that way. I was looking at the numbers just before we came on, on air. He's, he's one possession inside the final third 20 times this season, which makes him fourth of all the players in the Premier League, one shy of Martin Odegaard, who's in third. So we've got ourselves another player that out of possession... This is if he joins, of course. We've got ourselves a player that that can um, go go and press and be part of what we're doing. Um, uh, and Deserby at uh, at Brighton uh, has said that he changes the team, but he has to understand and to work with my attitude in my way because I'm the coach. I decide the rules inside the dressing room. Only this. I mean, one assumes that if he came. He'd get on board. He'd be in the boat, wouldn't he, really, I, I, I think. It's different being at Brighton. The thing is with Trossard, he's probably had whispers from his agent for, for months, maybe a season, right. of this club want you, this club want you. It's hard to focus fully on Brighton then, isn't it? I think if he comes to Arsenal, that the cons- the focus is is 100%. Well, let, and I think you, just, you get on it, don't you? Let's see. Uh, go on, James. No, I was just going to say, I mean, I think it's interesting as well. Well, first of all, What's said about a player when they're on the way out of a club, I think you always have to take a little bit with a pinch of salt because those situations are often difficult and That's tense. Why he's leaving. And, yeah, and players that agitate to make moves happen. Yeah. Uh, and that is a big part of the game, unfortunately. When it comes to sort of I, I think there's a sort of a pragmatism on both sides here. Like if you think about it from his perspective, he's twenty eight and he probably thinks I wanna compete for titles I want to play in the Champions League is probably a big consideration you know there, I'm sure there have been other clubs interested you know there's been talk about Tottenham talk about Chelsea but you know both those sides at the moment that's not a sure thing in the very short term no. and unlike a Mikhailo Mudrik you've probably got a player here who is thinking in the short term and I suspect Arsenal a little bit are thinking in the short term because they're looking at the next six months and trying to win the title so it seems to be an arrangement that suits all parties. So, yeah, famous last words. We talked about jinxing things uh, and <laughs> saying the wrong thing on a podcast. But, it, you know, you could see this deal progressing relatively straightforwardly. And I think the pleasing thing from Arsenal fans will be, whatever your opinion on Trossard as a player, at least it appears the club have been pretty decisive here and acted quite quickly and reactively after the, after the Mudrick thing. Just a quick one on this as well. <laughs> Chelsea, our nemesis... We've got a good existing relationship with Brighton, having done the Ben White deal, of course. Um, Don't forget that Chelsea stole their manager, 
Chelsea and stole, and their, stole their staff. Yeah. Exactly. I know they had to pay for it, but but there will be a an element of resentment there. So yeah, if there are any other Brighton players available, let's let's just let's just sweep them up. I mean, I do like Caicedo as as a as a as a Thomas Partey deputy. Well, do, this is yeah. what I wanted to talk about. There's one other thing. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about Declan Rice coming in in the summer, and I think I think pretty much the entire fan base would be unified in wanting oh, him yeah. to come in. What a what an excellent player. Um, but I've heard so many people talk about it, including people on this podcast. What happens? Do we just pray for Thomas Partey's non-injury for the rest of the season? Because you know he seems so crucial to the whole thing, James. I mean, what are we... We can't do without him in central midfield. He is incredibly crucial. And, you know, it's been interesting. There's been a lot of conversation in the last few weeks about Thomas Partey, uh, Casemiro and Rodri. Those three players who I think have been probably the outstanding ones in in that position in the league. Some good news last night on Casemiro, which we may come to. Right. (laughs) Uh, But he he is... I would almost, I hesitate to say it, but I feel he perhaps almost is irreplaceable in some respects mm. for Arsenal. I'm not sure, you know, looking at the market, Caicedo is a great player, but mm. I'm not sure there's anyone who can emulate quite what Partey gives you. I just think he unlocks this Arsenal team with his ability to control space at times single-handedly and to receive the ball in areas without a great deal of support where other players would be enormously under pressure taking it there. And he makes it look so straightforward. So I do have concerns, don't get me wrong. But on the other side of the coin, I just think, I just don't know who you can get that can do that job. No, and who would be happy to sit in the reserves while you know while he plays? Because if, if, uh, if he's fit, he's playing. Pick up a title winners medal potentially, mm-hmm. um, you know. For there is that as, as that deputy, as that deputy, and get Europa uh, on, League games and FA Cup games as well. Yeah, on Declan Rice very quickly. If that happens, I'd be super happy. Um, just, I don't want to be too disrespectful to the coaches that he's worked with, but you know, think how good he is now. He's ostensibly worked under David Moyes and, and Gareth Southgate. I think the prospect of him working with Mikel Arteta has the potential to kick on his own game unbelievably. I really do, in terms of the ideas that Mikel would, would put into him. I just think his game could go to to a different level. I really do. So if I'm Declan Rice, I would be all over this move. I know I'm biased, but I, I, I do think a lot of players like him will look at Mikel Arteta and think, yeah, I want to work with him a little bit, like, like players feel they can't turn down Pep Guardiola. I think... We might get to a stage where where individuals feel the same way about our gaffer, which is great. Yeah, I, I just wanted to ask Adrian. I mean, again, it's a long way away, and fans are probably more interested in, you know, what's going to happen in this January. But in terms of Rice, do you think he, if he was to come in, would it be to play in that Thomas Partey position at the base, or do you think he could play in the more advanced sort of number eight role for us? Yeah, he takes up a lot of positions on the left. I think. In the current framework, he'd probably compete with Granit Xhaka yeah. in that position. That's how that's how I'd see it. He very much can go forward um, and, and impact things. He makes a lot of passes that go into the final third. I, I think he would describe himself as more of a box-to-box midfielder than, than most of us who just see him as a defensive midfielder. The other thing is that 
in certain matches you just slot him alongside Thomas Partey and, and you have that sort of double pivot, don't you? Champions see? League semi-final up against Real Madrid. You'd probably want exactly. two, wouldn't you? There, <laughs> exactly. Really. Okay. Okay. Let's not tempt fate, though. I'm not... <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. Arsenal United. Uh, Arsenal will be Man United at the weekend. Um Enormous, enormous game. Uh, I've never cheered a booking quite as much as that, Adrian. I've got to be honest with you. I, I must admit, although I did cheer more when uh, when Elise got that equaliser as well. But that was a big moment. Losing Casemiro, that makes Martin Odegaard's uh, afternoon. I mean, he now he's got McTominay there and McTominay will try and mm. kick him. But, mm. uh, you yeah. know, Casemiro, I, that, that game last night, Casemiro bossed that for the first 70 minutes. I mean, he was so on top of things. And to lose him, that's a big moment for us. Yeah, I, I, look, I understand. I punched the air. Yeah. I did. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the, com- the commentator treated the moment like it was a red card. Now Zaha. and a suspension for the trip to the Premier League leaders on Sunday. That was my first reaction. He's like, has he got a red? And it's like, oh no, it's a yellow, but that's fine because he's out anyway. But yeah, no, I agree. I think we've just been talking about Thomas Partey, how important he is to Arsenal. I think you could make that argument for Casemiro and Manchester United. So it is, yeah, how would we feel if Thomas was, was missing that game? We'd be we'd be on a bit of a downer and I think that's that's how Manchester United feel. The players, I mean... We're talking about it afterwards. The was you know, complaining, was, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah, but that's great, isn't it? Because it, it's getting into their minds ahead of the game. They're thinking they're already making excuses for themselves, aren't they? That's that's the way I see it. As, you a, saw player, Ten Hag. as a player, mm. then Adrian, when you hear mm. something like that, if you're in the dressing room and you hear your next opponents talking like that, does that give you a boost? Give, yeah, I think it would. Yeah, I, th- I think I'd I'd be a bit boosted by that because I think well that they're worried about coming here without Casemiro, why else are they going on about it and how unfair it is? So, yeah, I think I think it's a negative ahead of kickoff, isn't it? On on Casemiro's influence and, and actually how improved they are as a defensive team, Manchester United. I was going through their expected goals against across the last 12 games where really Casemiro has been an absolute regular. In those 12 games, their XG against has been under one, nine of 12 games. Yeah. Um, and you know that's that 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 I think tells tells a story. Um, prior to that, the majority of their matches were over one in terms of expected goals against. So they are going to be a tougher nut to crack, but less tough you'd imagine without the Brazilian. Yeah, quite. Uh, James, I mean, they were the one team that's beaten us this season. I thought we played really well there, but we got a bit carried away at one all, didn't we? And then got caught with a sucker punch on the break. They know how to do that. And we are going to be attacking them at the Emirates. The crowd are going to be right up for it. They're going to be. We're going to be behind them. We've got to be careful not to get caught out again. I mean, they obviously talked about this. One would imagine. Yeah, and you know, we spoke about Mikel Arteta cutting his cloth according to what he's got, and I think mm. <clears throat> Eric Ten Hag has shown a, a capacity to do that. You know, he. Ideally, I think would be a very sort of possession-led coach. But if you look at their victories over Arsenal and against Man City, they've not always been able to play like that. But they've shown an ability to get results and use that pace on the break. I mean, Marcus Rashford has been in scintillating form and yeah. is definitely still you know the major threat to Arsenal in this game. But Arsenal really owe United one, especially after what happened at Old Trafford. It's the one blemish on the record, really, and it's just. A huge game. I think to win this off the back of the North London derby 
what it would do for Arsenal's season, you know, this it would be fantastic. So I can't wait, to be honest. And I think it's probably the... Probably, I mean, Castamira coming out slightly takes the shine off it in this respect, but these are probably the two best Arsenal and United teams we've seen in this fixture for quite a long time, yeah, I think. I agree. I agree. Yeah, Sunday should be quite something. Uh, obviously, before that, we're hoping that Harry Kane breaks the goal-scoring record for Tottenham tonight uh, and uh, <laughs> takes some points off Man City Go on, Harry. Well. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying come on you Spurs on the podcast. I just can't bring myself to do that. Uh, but anyway, um, by the way, if you want some more Arsenal podcasting in your life um, and why wouldn't you? Over on the Athletic Football uh, Podcast, Mark Chapman has been speaking with Amy Lawrence and Michael Cox all about... Martin Erdegaard. Uh, it is a thoroughly enjoyable listen. In fact, it's a little taster for you. Here's Michael talking about what makes Erdegaard a unique captain. And first, Amy on the Norwegian's determination from a young age. In fact, there's quite sweet detail about how, because of course a lot of uh, football was a bit more amateur not so long ago in, in countries like Norway, Scandinavia, it's become much more professional since. Um, Martin Odegaard's dad had, I think, some clothes shops in Drammen um, and he would go to work at the shop and take uh, young Martin down to the club and sort of leave him there with a packed lunch and a football on his own and until someone arrived that he could play football with. I mean, he was completely obsessed as a kid with training and training and technique and, and not just training but quality training. And he used to train on his own. He would train with anyone he could find, basically, when he was a kid. And um, apparently, the, even the day that he signed for uh, Stromskutsat, his first club in in uh, in Norway, he was the the, the managing director is um, Tori Andre Flo's brother Jostein, who you may remember briefly was over in the UK with Sheffield United and so on, the big commanding powerhouse of a Nordic centre forward. And he said that he had the, doing the contracts, and Martin's like fidgeting with the like almost with a ball under his feet un, under the desk, and not really paying. And he was looking at the contract, and he was wasn't interested in any other detail except the line in his contract that said that he was allowed to train as often as he wanted, because as a young player there were limits about how often you could train. You actually weren't allowed to train very much, or weren't allowed to play very much. There was restrictions. So his obsession was that. And he went and signed the contract and there was a noise coming from upstairs. The club kind of headquarters was closed. It was dark. And Flo was like, what's going on up there in the gym? And he went upstairs and there was Erdegaard in the gym on his own, listening to music, kicking balls. He just signed his first professional deal. So I think he had that single-mindedness and that uh, dedication. And, and he still has that, but he just needed to find the place where he felt comfortable enough to really be himself on the football pitch. But you look at those who have won the title as captain recently, Fernandinho, Jordan Henderson, Vincent Company, John Terry, yeah. Wes Morgan, Nemanja, Nemanja Vidic. It's still pretty much the kind of old school, the kind of person you'd make your captain in your Sunday league team, isn't it? It's the big lad at the back yeah. who, who rules instructions on. So yeah, it would be, I think, probably quite unlike anything we've seen before. If uh, if a player like Erdegaard, who, as Amy says, in addition to being not a traditional position for a captain, is not a real loud leader, if he can lead Arsenal to, you know, glory, not necessarily this season, but in the future, I do think it will be something quite different to what we've seen before in English football. 
And you can hear the whole thing over on the Athletic Football Podcast now. Let's have a tune before we go. Uh, Adrian, I'm going to come to you first. Yes, um, I've had a good think about this. It feels like we're going into battle this Sunday, doesn't it? I think two teams in really good form. That united Arsenal rivalry is simmering again, which I think is great for the Premier League. And it's good for us, I think, to get the juices flowing. feels like this match matters and it hasn't mattered for many, many years. So, so in terms of going into battle, I've picked Seven Nation Army, OK, uh, from the White Stripes. The reason I've picked Seven Nation Army is because our team this season, our starting eleven has seven nations in it. Um, and and it, we've got four Englishmen, two Brazilians, French, Ukrainian, Norwegian, Ghanaian, and a Swiss. And even if you put Gabriel Jesus in for Eddie Nketiah, we'd still be a seven-nation army. So we're going to go in to battle this uh, this Sunday with that particular um, battalion. And I'm excited to see it. So you, Adrian. That's great. I love that. Well done. Uh, James, what have you got? Yeah, that was expertly done. I'm it not was, sure wasn't I can it? It was rival beautiful. that. Yeah. And even if Eddie Nketiah eventually declares for Ghana, it'll still be Seven Nations because we've already got Thomas Partey. It's perfect. Um, I, I, do you know what? I, I've gone for I'm a believer only because I had a sort of quiet word with myself before the North London derby where I thought if they win here, I'm going to have to start saying Arsenal can definitely do this. And they went and they did it. And so I am a believer and I, I believe going into the United game, I think we can get the three points there too. So that's my song this week. I love hearing people come round to this. Gen- no, it genuinely <laughs> my gives- religious conversion is complete. <laughs> it genuinely gives me pleasure to hear this because I said last week on the pod, we are in a title race, are we not? And it, Amy, although she didn't say yes, she did nod. I should point that out because the uh, listener would not have heard that. Uh, but she did nod. And if we're in a title race, we can win the title. Of course we can, especially if we're a bit Man United on Sunday. Um, we have been, uh, they were talking on the uh, on the uh, Athletic Football Podcast about Martin Erdegaard. Um, choosing a favourite player this season is incredibly difficult. I mean, you could have almost anyone. But I believe that Martin Erdegaard has been the man. I would love watching him play. Uh, so I'm going for a Joe Jackson tune from years ago called I'm the Man. Um, proper sort of punky new wave classic I think Uh, that's it for uh, Handbrake Off uh, for today thank you to James thank you to Adrian thank you to Abby our producer Uh, thank you for listening Uh, enjoy the game Sunday see you soon 